0: Hello, this is Rick Kite with Ethics Today, and we're going to be talking with Pete Getke, who is uh, Vice President of Academic Affairs at Memphis Theological Seminary and Profession of Christian Ethics, and also founder of a a Catholic worker house in Memphis, Tennessee called Mana House, uh, which he helped to found 15 years ago, and that deals with uh, um, uh, many of the social issues that are going on in, in in Memphis, uh, but especially it's a it's a house of hospitality for anybody who wants wants to come and be welcomed as a guest. And um, what what we're seeing during this time of pandemic is uh, really increased need among our most vulnerable populations. And so, uh, Pete, I just wanted to talk to you about what you're seeing, and then and also kind of what what you think we should be better as we address um everybody in our society so first of all thank you pete for joining me today
1: it's good to be here rick it's good to see you um even at a distance
0: yeah yeah so
1: well what's going on in memphis is not unlike what's going on really in every major city in the united states uh with regard to homelessness uh numbers are starting to go up It's probably going to go up significantly later through the summer and into the fall with more and more evictions that will be taking place.
0: Has has Uh, there been a moratorium on evictions in Tennessee?
1: There has. It's supposed to end May 31st, so Mm -hmm. next week. Um, And I I haven't been able to find out if it's going to be extended, but probably not. It's pretty typical of of other states as well that had these moratoriums. They're all ending... Uh, either at the end of this month or sometime in June. And that means, you know, no one's going to get evicted uh, right away because the the eviction process takes a little while, but Mm -hmm. certainly by August or September, and definitely by October, November, there'll be a larger number of people without housing. You know, and that's at at the root of homelessness is people are homeless because they don't have homes. Um, You know, housing is not affordable. And, so in people who were in jobs that in which they were barely able to make rent uh, have lost those jobs. And so they're not going to be paying rent and they're going to get evicted.
0: Well, well, so many people with what we might call marginal incomes are working in service area jobs. And those are the ones that are most hardest hit, right? During this pandemic uh, in, exactly. in restaurants and hotels and things like that.
1: Yeah. And it's, um, In Memphis the service economy was uh, a fairly significant part of the economy Uh, and also warehouses and transportation now those are doing okay um, because uh, increased online shopping but the definitely the restaurants are being shuttered around here already Uh, places that have been in business you know three four or five years or a little bit longer are going out of business and that trend is just going to continue.
0: So are you are you seeing more people coming to Manor House on a daily basis and has that been increasing over the past couple of months or so far has it been staying pretty steady? It's been staying uh, pretty steady. I mean, in, in some respects we've
1: seen fewer people uh, because we've cut back some of our services due to safety regulations that we're trying to operate under. Um, but, the demand for those services is still high. So what I've been doing is i talk talked with, you know, our guests when they come and they're letting me know that uh, it's pretty desperate out on the streets. Shelters have cut either stopped operation or they've cut the numbers that they allow in. Uh, but the same number or slightly increasing numbers of people are on the streets. Um, and then some of the standard places where people could go, on lo- that are not places of direct hospitality, like like fast food restaurants or the public library. Those have all been closed too. So there's been no access to the bathrooms or just to get a drink of water to wash up. Um, so it's it's pretty bleak for people on the streets.
0: But tell tell me a little more about Manor House. I know it's a Catholic worker house. You describe it as a house of hospitality. Um, what what? What services do you provide and and how does it differ from, say, a soup kitchen or something like the Salvation Army that provides uh, overnight shelter and that sort of thing?
1: So if we were a social service agency, they would classify us as a day shelter. Mm -hmm. Uh, What that means is people come to us three mornings a week, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday uh, for showers, change of clothes, uh, and really just a a place – to be welcomed and to be safe, uh, to not be har- harassed or hassled by the police. Um, so we're, we welcome anywhere from 100 to 120 people each morning that we're open. And we also do serve a meal on Monday evenings. That's usually uh, 80 to 100 people. Um, we have sort of our regulars, people that we've seen uh, for a number of years. That's uh, probably about a third of the people who come, and the other two thirds are are more transient who we may see for a month or two, and then we don't see any more are they uh,
0: are they traveling through Memphis, or are they just are they just kind of temporarily homeless or in need, so they come to you for showers and so forth for a short period of time, but then they get more stability in their lives and they find housing? Is that what's going on?
1: Uh, That's it's both both of those things. So some people are are kind of passing through and then there are people who are uh, sort of off and on homeless. So they're probably like couch surfing or staying with a friend or a relative. And then for whatever reason that comes to an end, Uh, then they're back out on the streets for a while Then they uh, find another place where they can kind of crash for a month or two, then they're back out on the streets. Now, uh, one of the things Memphis, like other cities, has been taking a housing first approach to try to address homelessness, mm-hmm. and that does get people uh, housed, uh, but often that's short term for six months or so, and if they're not able to find work to uh, start to pay rent, then they end up back out on the streets. And, and one of the problems in Memphis for uh, people to keep a job is that our public transportation system is horrendously bad. So, and a lot of the jobs are out, sort of out of the inner city. So, if, you, if you're, if you say, staying in a shelter or you're able to get low-income housing somewhere inside the city, uh, most of the jobs that people would get, like warehouse jobs, are on the periphery uh, of the city, like out near the airport.
0: Right, right. Now, you're not... You don't describe yourself just as providing social services though, right? Um, That's
1: right. So as a, as a house of hospitality, what we're really uh, focused on is building relationship with people um, and welcoming people as it says in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, um, whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me, Jesus is speaking. So we welcome each other as, the, as they are the very presence of Christ. I sometimes talk about this with uh, other volunteers or visitors that hospitality is like the eighth sacrament Mm -hmm. uh, that the presence of Christ is in the people who come to us that the guests Um, and it was instituted by Christ in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Uh, So it kind of fits the standard definition of a sacrament instituted by Christ as a means of grace. Um, And so for hospitality, we see that practice as different from charity which is often dispensed from above from a position of superiority um and we try to come alongside our guests and we recognize that our guests are really evangelizing us um they're the ones who are bringing christ to us we're not bringing christ to them so yeah we're different from a salvation army or a union mission kind of place that sees itself as sort of offering services in order to win souls uh, if anybody's souls are being won in the services we're being, we're offering, it's our own souls. Um, our guests are already saved. Uh, they're already close to God. In fact, they, they teach me all the time, you know, as a professor of Christian ethics and professor of theology, uh, I'm, I learn a tremendous amount of theology uh, from the people who come uh, to Manor House on a regular basis.
0: Well, there is this, tradition in, um, I, I guess, in the teaching about hospitality in the Christian tradition historically, that there's something that takes place, place the host-guest reversal in which, yes. right, you set up, you, it's your house, right, and you, you invite the guest in, but then they end up conferring some kind of blessing on you, and so that, in a way, they become the host within your own home.
1: That's exactly right. I can give you a story that uh, illustrates that this is from a few years back when my when my dad died. Um, I you know went up to Minnesota for the funeral, came back, and I'm serving at Manahouse. And one of the guests comes up to me and he's in tears. And and I said, Stephen, what's what's wrong? And he said, I'm just filled with sorrow over the death of your dad. Hmm. And he said, I know what loss is. And I'm with you in this loss. And I thought, that's the best uh, pastoral statement I've heard since my dad died.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that's, you know, that, right, when Kathleen had, uh, who's my partner at Manor House, my wife, um, when she had breast cancer, the guests gathered around her, laid their hands on her and prayed for her as she was going into radiation treatment. I mean, it's powerful. Uh, our guests are, are powerful people of prayer, uh, and they share that with us. They share their lives with us, you know. and all we're doing is offering some fairly paltry stuff like a shower and a change of clothes. I mean, it's important, but uh, they're giving their very lives to us.
0: Um, that's an incredible story, and it, it goes right to the heart of something that's happened in our Western societies is the kind of distance that is created in our 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 social services kind of industry. We we've created this framework where we become really pretty efficient at providing for lots of needs. So there, I mean, we don't we don't have a lot of people starving anymore because we're pretty good at distributing food. Maybe not always healthy food, but but right, distributing food, um, finding ways of sheltering people, taking care of health care, and there's th- You know, we're always debating proposals to make this better. But Western societies generally do a pretty good job of taking care of needs. But the only way to do this really efficiently is to make it depersonalized. And um, so that many of those who are, uh, what we do actually, we hire people to interact with the people who need the services. So as a taxpayer, uh, you know, I'm paying money that goes into, you know, Medicaid, and um, the, uh, you know, food, food programs and and everything else, right. Uh, But I'm not directly interacting with the people in need unless I volunteer in one of these organizations. Uh, Right. Hospitality, what you're doing is you're getting directly involved in the personal relationships.
1: That's right. And then you know, and those social services are, are important. Uh, and that bureaucracy is important as a kind of safety net for basic physical needs. Uh, and, of course, it's not as good of a net as it, as it ought to be uh, by far. Um, and so we're addressing some of the gaps sometimes in that safety net even. But what we're really doing is trying to offer people a place where they're treated like people uh, you know, that they're, they're a name, not a number for us. Um, we're, we're not set up to be efficient. In fact, one of our slogans around Manahouse is that efficiency is the work of the devil. Um, and sort of said that tongue in cheek, but it's true. We're not, we're not set up to, uh, try to address every need. Uh, and we're not set up to just run people through a system We're really there for people to come and be treated, as I said, as human beings, as people made in the image of God who deserve respect, uh, who deserve that their dignity be recognized and affirmed. Um, And that, you know, we're not asking them to prove that they're homeless. We're not asking for identification. uh, We don't do intake analysis or anything like that. People just show up. So in fact, a number of our guests Uh, probably about a third of our guests are not homeless. Uh, They're people from the neighborhood, our low low income folks who simply need a place like, like people who go to Starbucks want a place to just hang out for a while. Uh, Instead of Starbucks, people who are low income can come and hang out with us for a while.
0: Well, I'm, I'm involved with some organizations that (laughs) Uh, funding for some of these services and what we're always asking for is the demonstration of how you're using the funds and so right. and you're not doing an analysis Right we, we aren't and how do you get your funding? I mean, do you get grants or are you this is just donations? That's coming from individuals Yeah, it's who-
1: donations from individuals and and some churches synagogues mosques uh, even the local Hindu temple uh, is given a sizable uh, donation so yeah, we're completely supported by donations. Of course, none of us are paid. We're an all volunteer staff. So that keeps the cost down pretty significantly. Our budget, our yearly budget, is about $35,000. Uh, and with that, like I said, we serve about 80 to 120 or so people three mornings a week uh, that we're open plus the meal on Mondays. Mm-hmm. So, but we're not. Um, yeah. We have like individual success stories that we could share with people who who want to hear those things, but that's not our focus. Uh, our focus is really solidarity and accompaniment that we, like I said, we come alongside our guests and welcome them as fellow human beings. Um, and then it's really those relationships ultimately that if people are looking for success stories those are the things that are transformative both for ourselves and for our guests. So, I mean, I've, we've had guests who have come back to us and said, you know, when I first came here, uh, I was on the streets. I thought I was a worthless human being. I was completely depressed and down on myself. Uh, and you guys just treated me like, like anybody else, you know, they treated me like somebody who's a friend of yours. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that gave me a sense of my own dignity and gave me a sense of hope again. And so I started, uh, trying to get connected to some of the social services even because he'd given up on that because, you know, the reality is like you go to, um, social security office to try to get social security benefits. Good luck. Uh, if you don't have a lawyer, uh, you're going to get put through the ringer. Uh, you're trying to get disability guaranteed. You'll get turned down at least the first two times that you apply uh, and you probably just get turned down permanently if you don't have a lawyer advocating for you so the system is set up to grind people down to really turn them away Um, and we're set up to welcome people and to say we're here with you Um, in fact sometimes we accompany people to those places so Uh, i
0: was going to ask you that so and and if Like if people need advice for something that they're dealing with, trying to get access to like services that they qualify or, you know, benefits, do you help them with legal services and things like that as well? Well, we don't do legal because we're,
1: you know, none of us are lawyers, Um, but it's really accompaniment. So like this one guy was having problems at uh, one of the local hospitals, just getting his prescription filled. Uh, So I just went with him and stood there as he talked with the person who was trying to turn him down again and i said "Now, uh, aren't you all here really to fill these prescriptions and the person looked at me and said oh yeah so and they filled the prescription i mean but they were you know they presume and and it works you know if they just keep saying no someone will go away but if somebody else is standing there and of course this was african-american man uh elderly African-American man and then I'm standing there as a you know white sort of middle-aged or getting a little older now but um, and saying look help this guy or I'm going to call the local newspaper um, so I have some access that maybe this guy doesn't and that can turn the situation around
0: so how much how much of that like your effectiveness at getting results in a situation like that is due to you being white how much does it do to you being like your personality i can tell is being pretty persistent <laughs> you're not going to take no for an answer how much is it that you're just articulate and you're fairly educated about these things and so you have a, you know what is going on and how to talk about it
1: yeah i mean that's you know it's being white middle-class males i know how to navigate uh systems um because that's what I've done through my life and the systems have typically worked for me. So that's not the case for an older African-American man who has been turned away and told no uh, repeatedly and may have more of a tendency to give up at that point because he just, you know, systems set up against him. So yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I'm a white male um, who comes in and says, I can call the newspaper. Uh I you know, here it's on my phone. There's one of a there's a woman here with uh, a local newspaper, uh Wendy Thomas, and I just say her name and they're like, Oh no, don't call Wendy Thomas. Um so you know, average person on the streets, a homeless person doesn't have that kind of access. Um and yeah, it has a lot to do with race, it has a lot to do with class. And of course all of those those both of those play into being, you know, educated and all of those sorts of things as well.
0: I'm sure one of the questions you get from, from from people who just find out about this work that you're doing, you're in the inner city of Memphis. Um, Memphis, by all the statistics, it's a pretty dangerous city. It's in the top 10 category in the nation for violent crimes, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it is year after year. And you're working in an area in which a lot of crime takes place. Um, is it dangerous? And like. What, what is your experience working in that place? And how do you address the fears that some people have about joining you in that kind of effort? Uh,
1: I would say this, that, you know, we've been open 15 years, we've never had bloodshed on the property. Um, our guests from the streets, from the neighborhood, um, they love Manor House. It's their place, and they protect it. Um, so we've certainly had conflicts, we've had uh, an occasional fight, that sort of thing, but we've never called the police. Uh, we simply say to the guests, uh, the guests who are involved, leave now uh, or we shut the place down and nobody wants to be responsible for Mana House being shut down because uh, the other guests are not going to be very happy about that. So it's really, you know, the, the guests treat Manor House as their place and they respect the place, they respect, respect the people who are there, which is each other and us. Um, and we just haven't had violence. Uh, the most threatening situations that we've ever had has really been because of the police who have showed up and presumed that they could just walk onto the property and yank people off the property. And we don't allow the police on the property because they have weapons. Uh, you,
0: don't allow, uh, you don't allow anybody with weapons?
1: No, we don't. So even somebody's like walking up carrying a stick, you say, You got to leave the stick on the sidewalk. You can't bring that in here. Now, that doesn't mean that, does that mean people don't have weapons? No. I mean, we don't have a metal detector or anything like that. Uh, in fact, one, after, one morning, uh, it was around Christmas time, we were having sort of a party and there was some music and this woman was dancing. And as she was dancing, a knife fell out of her brassiere and clattered onto the floor. She just sort of swept down in her dance move and picked it up and put it back in and continued on. Uh, Then we asked her to leave. So, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, a you know, people, um, the people who come to Mana House are people who are more often the victims of violence themselves uh, than the perpetrators of violence. Um, They get beat up, they get robbed, they get uh, harassed. Um, they don't like violence. I mean, they're trying to avoid violence.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm. I want also want to ask you about race because uh, Memphis is a city that's had a lot of racial tensions over the years. Um, I would imagine that um, you. Um, well, you're, you're in the minority as a as a white male in that part of Memphis. Um, right. How do you negotiate, I mean, is race a problem for you um, in, um, in doing that kind of work in the inner city of Memphis? And how do you deal with it?
1: Uh, race is a problem everywhere uh, because white people have created this uh, system of race that systemically uh, discriminates and oppresses people of color. Um, so Memphis is about 60% or so African American, but the economic and political power here is firmly in the hands of white people. Um, so I mean, we have a white mayor, <laughs> um, and you know, we've had African American mayors in the past, but we currently have a white mayor in a city that's 60% African American. Yeah. Um, the you know the business class here the majority of the people who are wealthy business people in this city are white. Um, this has been described, Memphis has been described as a plantation town and in some ways it really is. So, you know, one of the largest employers here is FedEx, um, owned by, you know, a white family and it survives. I mean, or it thrives in terms of the, uh, distribution center here, the people who are doing all of the sorting are part-time union, not unionized, uh, folks who are being paid, you know, it's not a living wage. um, And that's what's what really makes FedEx possible. Uh, And the warehouse distribution stuff that's here, almost all minimum wage or slightly above minimum wage jobs, keep people in poverty, keep them dependent uh, upon these bad jobs uh, to survive at all. It's really a plantation. Um, so that's you know, race here is always in the air. Uh, as a city in the South, it's going to be, for sure. There's a long history of racism in the city. It continues to this very day in the way in which uh, economic and political power are set up. So at Mana House, uh, certainly our guests who are African-American, which is the majority of our guests are African-American. And the volunteers, most of whom are white, were very aware of those power dynamics uh, and the inequalities in the history that, that goes uh, way back that, are, that keep those dynamics going today. So the thing that, that I found is that honest, open uh, confession and discussion is the best way to address those issues uh, as they may come up at Manor House. So, for example, if a guest says to me, you know, you're being racist, I say, I probably am. Tell me more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, tell me, tell me what's going on the way you're seeing this situation so that maybe we can change something uh, together. Um, and, and the other thing is the guests see that we have their backs in terms of, like, not allowing the police onto the property. That, that's a huge thing. They know that we've gone to jail occasionally uh, in acts of civil disobedience related to homelessness and poverty and, and violence. And so they, they know where our commitments are and that makes a big difference. Um, but you know, sometimes the racism comes of like an African-American man who approached me and, and say something like, hey boss, uh, what do I need to do to get something around here? And I have to say, first of all, I'm not your boss. Uh, second of all, let me tell you about how the place works. And then let's have a conversation about why you called me boss in the first place, uh, if you want to. Um, but so those things can come up from time to time. Uh, really, I think it happened a lot more when we first opened. It doesn't happen quite as much anymore because we have sort of street credibility at this point.
0: Well, and you've, you've developed relationships and nurtured them over a period of years. Right. So you've, you've built trust.
1: Yes, that's exactly what's happened. I'll give you one example of, of that building trust. We had a guest came, came to us pretty much when we first opened. Um, and he, we asked him what his name was to write it down. We just take first names to write down like for the shower list. And he said, my, call me James. So for about five years, we were calling him James. And then one day he came and said, you know, my name's not really James. My name's John. And I said, "Well, why did you tell us that your name was James? He said, "I had to wait until I could trust you. It's five years
0: <laughs> five years yeah, yeah, to give you his real name, which gives you a right. kind of power right in that relationship that's if, right, yeah yeah um it's you know that we're we're talking today just a few days after the um um the the murder." In uh, Minneapolis. Um, yeah. well, I'm saying murder or killing of a, of a black man by yeah. a police officer, Minneapolis police officer. Um, and the riots that have been taking place the last two days. And I, I know you had a lot of protests there in Memphis over this. Yes, we uh, have. What I'm hearing over and over again is this demand for systems change. Um, and yet, it, it seems to me that what we don't talk enough about is that culture change and relationship building, the development of trust, which takes a long time to do, right? Uh, you, don't, you don't get trust through making a quick change to something in our system.
1: Right. So I mean, they're, they're linked. Um, I think systemic change and cultural change go hand in hand. Um, give an example of this related to the murder of Mr. Floyd. Um, So the police are part of the criminal justice system. And the criminal justice system is in our society because our culture is set up as a retributive, a punishing system. Uh, The police are kind of the spear point or gun point uh, of that system. They're set up to presume uh, punishment, uh, retribution. And so it's not surprising that we would have uh, repeatedly over time, in cities across the United States, the police acting as uh, people of punishment, of retribution, rather than uh, people of building community or restoration, or, or to use a Christian term, redemption. That's the way the system's set up, and there's a whole, of course, a whole theology behind that system of, of a view of God, even that God is retributive, that God is a punisher. And so how do, we, how do we change that system? Well, it requires a cultural change uh, of moving from a retributive form of justice to a restorative form of justice, and then having policing reflect restorative justice rather than retributive justice. That's a big challenge, and it's complicated by race.
0: And it's, um, it's, it's not a... Um... It's not a change that you can bring about, say, by getting rid of a few bad actors. If you if you've got something that's set up based on this idea of retribution, um, you're you're always, in a way, developing more bad actors. That's right. Uh, and I don't know how you would. Um, uh, any culture kind of establishes a certain set of social norms, right? Um, and I've. I've talked to a number of police chiefs around the country, mostly in smaller towns and places that are, that work really hard to develop a, a cultural change, um, developing, getting to know the people in the, in the neighborhoods, in the communities in which the officers are serving, and so forth. And this can be pretty successful over a period of time. Mm-hmm. But I guess it, it's especially hard in these big cities.
1: Yeah, I would think so. Um, it's, it's definitely harder because you have a whole culture within the police department itself. Uh, and, and part of it is, is that, I mean, policing is hard work. Uh, you're going up a, in day in and day out, you're being called to crisis situations uh, where people are acting badly. Right? And so you get calloused. Um, and, and that's very hard to resist that callousness. Especially when it's also backed up by a whole system that is encouraging retribution. Yeah. So yeah, and and smaller towns, it helps because you may know the people uh, that you're being called to address in that moment of crisis, uh, and you you know their history. You you've have a relationship with them. Uh, you're not just going by in a in a police cruiser occasionally. Um, so it's yeah, it's a very different setting. I, I mean, I have a brother-in-law who is the Uh, sheriff of Oltenstead County in Southern Minnesota for a number of years. And that was his, you know, one of his main things was trying to build those kinds of relationships uh, through his officers in the sheriff's department. Um, You know, one of the reasons it's connected with homelessness, actually, he was an advocate for housing first for people who were on the streets because he saw that, you know, just arresting people and putting them in jail that's not addressing any underlying issues. It's not addressing their lack of housing. So get people into housing first, and then you can start to address maybe if somebody has an addiction issue or mental illness or both, or needs job training or just needs a stable place to live. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a challenge to make that kind of big cultural change. But I think that's where, that's where the church needs to come in. It's where uh, nonprofits need to enter in and say, look, there, there are other ways that we could be doing this. Uh, let's at least start with some pilot programs, get those launched, and you'll start to see they actually work better. I mean, community policing, where you have the police officers living in the community in which they police, makes a difference. If you have people like Minneapolis, a lot of their officers don't live in Minneapolis. So they're not tied into the city, they're tied into um, a, a different mentality and for them it's just a job and they know that they'll survive in their job if they're if they're hard asses right um, because the the least little bit of humanity that you might show might be exploited in a crisis situation
0: well I, I was looking last year at some statistics on uh, police suicide that's been going up really considerably over the last 10 to 15 years Mm-hmm. And, um, and it correlates pretty strongly with the number, of, um, the number of kind of serious incidents that they respond to. So the number of calls they take per day. And that has risen dramatically. And so you think you're, you're encountering more and more stressful situations. And this is, this is going back to efficiency, right? We're making all our organizations more efficient. And there's a human price to pay. When you, when you ask people to do more and more, especially of these really stressful things, you know, how, how often can you put yourself in a position of danger mm-hmm. without it having effect on how you view every encounter, right?
1: That's right, that's right. And, and imagine now too, we're, we're living in a society where the social safety net is just being destroyed. Um, and, and part of that's related to the pandemic, but the, tend- the trajectory was there beforehand. Uh, on political leadership, cutting programs that were spe- specifically in place to help people who are struggling, so you start to take out that that safety net. Plus, you increase the amount of social suffering because of the pandemic, and we're living in a tinderbox, right? I mean, we're or, you know some of said a ticking time bomb, um, and this this is systemic, and so we're not. We're not addressing these issues as um, matters of justice that recognize that our economic system is severely uh, problematic, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, instead, we keep looking at this as, a, as if it's some kind of individual moral failure, if somebody's in poverty or they're on the streets. Uh, and what we've got to start to realize is that we're all in this together, uh, and we can't flourish as a society Unless the person who's the least of these uh, is flourishing, and that's a basic test of biblical justice right. uh, that God is always concerned especially about how are the poor doing and it 's not because the poor are more moral or virtuous in god 's eyes is that god's not an idiot God knows that the way people who are poor are being treated is, is indicative of how a society is set up to either be uh, seeking the well-being of all, or just seeking the well-being of a, f- of a few. And right now, our society is very much set up to seek the well-being of just a few.
0: Well, and that, that's why it's more and more important for us just to start paying attention. And I, um, that's, that's really why I'm doing this series right now, is I'm, what I've been doing is contacting all kinds of people that I've met at various points in my career, and just trying to listen. To Mm -hmm. um, thinking that, like, this is the first step in ethics, not to um, argue for solutions that we happen to favor, but just to listen to what's going on. So that once we do try to say, like, let's try to act in this way or that way, we're Mm -hmm. doing it on a basis of understanding the, the real world instead of our imaginary world.
1: Yeah, and one of the great moral teachers that I look up to is this guy named Jesus and if you read uh, Mark's gospel in particular, the way Jesus teaches, the way Jesus approaches situations time and time again is by asking questions, Um, and that's what we all need to do. We all need to be asking questions like, why is this going on? What is going on here? Uh, How might we learn from the people who are most directly affected what's needed? I mean, that's you know, Manahouse House is a listening post uh, in a lot of ways for me to go and listen to people on the streets. They know what it takes to get off the streets. They just don't have the resources to do it. They know they need public transportation. They know they need housing. They know they need health care. They, they know they need jobs. Um, but we just don't listen very well in our culture. And we have kind of we've set up some people to the top self-appointed experts Uh, who are rarely in relationship, direct relationship with the people they're purportedly concerned about.
0: Pete, as always, it's fascinating to talk to you, and we could go on a lot longer, but we won't. We'll try to keep this in (laughs) time, but I would like to come back and visit with you again in a couple months, uh, see what's going on. I mean, if we do have this ticking time bomb going on, uh, you know, homelessness, we'll... we'll, um, It'll be interesting to see what happens and maybe get a better idea of how what we need to do to to address it. And um, so thank you so much for joining. Sure. Us. Thank you, Rick.
1: It's been a pleasure. Bye bye.